0: So please turn your Bibles with me this morning back to 1st Timothy, chapter 4. And as we read the text and pray this morning, I do want to remember those who are sick this morning. Think of the Kriegels and also the uh, Wickerts. And uh, good to to see Jared and his family and thankful that Bonnie is getting better. Thank you for praying for her, and, and we also will continue to pray for Bella. Good to see her here this morning as well. Let's keep praying for those who who have illness. Would you stand with me one more time? And I'd like to read this text together that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to focus on verses 6 through 10, and um, but I'd like to go ahead and read even verses following all the way through 16. Let's read this text together in unison. 1 Timothy 4, 6-16 through If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do lift our loved ones up to you this morning. We thank you that you are the Creator, the God of heaven and earth, the living God, the Great Physician, the Almighty One. We pray for the Kriegels this morning, and the Wickerts, and for Bella, and we think of Bonnie as well as she continues to heal. We pray, Lord, that You would put Your healing hand on these, and we do miss them this morning, and we ask that You would raise them up and care for them. We pray, Lord, that You would open Your Word to us by the ministry of Your Spirit, that we would understand the things that You have for us, for those who love You and are called according to Your purpose. We ask that You would renew our minds, that You would teach us, and let us behold wonderful things from Your Word. May our hope be in You. May our trust be in Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we've, we've been looking at this section of Scripture, verses 6-16, through 16, and really the main idea that consumes all of these verses is the call from Paul to Timothy and still for us diligently pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus and so we've been looking at the question how then does one pursue becoming a good servant of Christ Jesus and we noticed eight or we're looking at eight marks we looked at the first one last week and we'll continue Lord willing here with the second one this coming or this week and, and in the weeks ahead eight marks. And uh, the first one, I should go back to my outline here. The first one that we looked at last week was put the truth before your family. Meaning, put the words of God on the table for those to whom God has entrusted you in spiritual care. Whether an elder, or a deacon, or a parent, or a Bible study leader. Each one of us who are believers and have grown in the Lord have people that God has entrusted to our spiritual care. And so, we're to put the truth before them. And that includes four things that the Apostle Paul noted for us in in, in verse 6. To warn them. And secondly, we looked at to teach them. To teach them the words of the faith and good doctrine. But there's no way that we can warn or, or teach those God has entrusted to us unless first, we are being nourished up in the Word. And so that's the third element that the Apostle Paul gives to us there in verse 6. He says, being trained. You put the things before them, being trained or nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. And then the last is, is the very last word there in verse 6, that you have followed. It is very important not just to teach the truth, not just to warn others of the truth, but then to follow it ourselves in mind and life. Well, this morning we come to the second mark of a good servant of Christ Jesus, which is explained in verses 7-10, through 10, and it is train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And there's five elements of this that you can see in your outlines there that I want to work through the text with you this morning. A, the goal of training. B, the restriction of training. C, the value of training. D, the labor of training. And finally, E, the hope So let's look at this together. We come to verse 7, and the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It seems that that is really the central thought here in these verses. The goal of training is godliness. That word train, we look at that word, train, it, it refers to exercise, a literally physical exercise in, in the cultural context of Paul's day. In fact, that word in the original language is the same word that we get our English word gymnasium from. It means to train, to exercise, to prepare for an athletic event. That's what you do in a gymnasium. And Paul is drawing upon a very common activity in Ephesus, in the Greco-Roman Empire, in order to make his point about the importance and the the vigilance and the energy that will go into training for godliness. The, The city of Ephesus would have had a gymnasium in it. And a very important part of the culture of the day was the physical education. Remember PE class? I tell my kids who were homeschooled, we had PE class. Like, What's PE class? Oh, physical education, right? And and so that was a very important part of the upbringing of particularly young men. And so in their late teenage years, they would become a part of the gymnasium where they would train vigorously for physical athletic events. And so the people of Ephesus were a part of this massive culture that really worshipped at the altar of physical strength and beauty. And so Paul calls the people of God to another very important contrast from their culture. Just as he did with the temple of Diana and the creed of Diana that he mentions in, in verse 16 of chapter 3. Remember how Paul said, hey, you all, are not necessarily the church there in Ephesus, but the Ephesian people were all about the god Diana. They had set up this massive temple which was one of the, the ancient wonders of the world and their creed was great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul says, no, no, great is the mystery of godliness. Jesus Christ manifest to us. That is what is great. And so again, here, he sort of uses a cultural, iconic activity, athletic training, exercise in the gymnasium. And he says, if you're going to exercise hard, if you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, if you want to exercise hard, exercise yourself for godliness. That's the goal of training. That's the goal of your most devoted exercise you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus you must train for godliness a little word for is helpful in that it means to toward for the purpose of it's it puts godliness as the goal of the training And it's evident in that word that that it's, it's it's an ambition that you set out in front of yourself, not one that you're going to achieve in this life, right? Godliness is Christ manifest. And none of us will achieve perfect likeness to Christ in this life. But Paul says, put that out in front of you as your goal of training and exercise. And then, what is godliness? Sometimes it seems to me that 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 word is difficult to define. If you look it up in a dictionary or a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, you would see words like reverence. Living your life with reverence for God. With a sense of worship. A mind that that is filled with God. Or or piety. You might see the word piety. That's an old word our language. Religion. And so it, it seems like it's kind of broad and a little bit vague as I look at that. And 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 even as you look at definitions found in commentaries, there's there's lots of words put together like that. And, and so sometimes I feel a bit challenged when I'm trying to really nail down the definition of what a word means. What does it mean to be godly? And so One of the things in this text that I found most helpful is to simply remember how Paul defined godliness. The last time Paul referred to godliness, he spoke of Christ. Remember? Look back, verse 16, 1 Timothy 3. He said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. So could we say that, that the mystery of godliness is Christ? revealed isn't isn't that what that verse means great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness and then the next word is what he and then it, and then it talks about Christ manifest in this in this earth as with a perfect life and, and his sacrificial death and so on and so I think we could say that that a godly life is a Christ focused life. The life that Paul says to train for is a life that is centered on Christ. Well, maybe we're getting a little more specific, but still, what does that mean? A life that's focused on Christ, centered on Christ. What is that? Well, let, let's let's put it. Let's t- take it apart in maybe some different specific actions. To have a Christ-focused life means that your trust is placed on Christ. Your dependence is, is on Him for physical life, for spiritual life. That, that's kind of the beginning of a life of godliness. Your trust is in Christ, His, his person and His Word. And then, maybe we could say that a Christ-focused life is, is, is a life that begins to fill the mind with Christ, His words, His attributes who he is you're you're learning more and more from him and then and then your affection is growing toward Christ so your trust your mind your affection you're learning to love Christ more than anything to love self less to love sin less and to love the world less because you're learning to love him more and you then worship Christ Your worship begins to be focused more on Christ. In everything, with thanksgiving. And your will is being submitted to Christ as you obey His commands, His his Word. You realize that He is your Master and you are His slave and everything. And your submission then is increasing. And really, we could sum all of that up by saying your thoughts and your attitudes and words and actions are becoming more Christ-like year after year. You think that's a fair defin- definition of godliness? When we consider what Paul said, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Christ, my ambition is to know Christ and to become like Christ. That's that's godliness. And so here's the question: as we as we think about this, if if, if that's true religion and piety and devotion and worship and reverence and godliness, then then that is the goal of every. Good servant of Christ Jesus. That's his ambition. And and we know that from Scripture. Life, The the greatest ambitions of life for a believer are not so much what we do, but becoming Christ-like. Isn't that why God saves us? That's that's what life is all about. Knowing Christ and becoming like Him. And so, to trust and imitate Christ, Our Master and everything is the goal. And that's what we are to train for day after day. We train for that. Does does perseverance in trusting Christ take training and exercise? It certainly does. There's so many situations in life when, when your faith is challenged. Shall I continue to believe in Christ? Shall I persevere in faith? You train. And by God's grace, you continue. Obeying Christ requires exercise. Knowing Christ in the mind requires training and exercise. Loving Christ requires exercise. Godliness will require exercise, training. That's the goal for which the good servant of Christ trains. So first, notice that the goal of training is godliness, Christ-likeness. But secondly, letter B this morning, I want you to notice the restriction of training. It comes from the first phrase in verse 7. He starts off by saying, have nothing to do with. Have nothing to do with. And then he says, irreverent, silly myths. This phrase is an immediate contrast with training for godliness, and, and you can see that contrast and that connection simply by the word "rather." Right, he's connecting those two ideas. Don't go here; rather, train yourself for godliness. Don't don't, don't have nothing to do with irreverent, silly midst. Instead of that, train yourself for godliness. When a person is getting ready to do a, a an Ironman triathlon. I don't. I won't ask how many of you have ever tried to do a triathlon, but there is training involved, right? And in that training, there's some restrictions. There's, you can't eat whatever you want in whatever quantity you want. That that will be counterproductive. You, and you can't spend your time doing whatever you want. Whenever you take up an ambition, an endeavor like that. It's going to require some restrictions of activity and certainly diet. Part of that training will be to cut out what will hinder your progress and what will hinder the achieving of your goal. That's the way it is with godliness. I hope that Paul, the inspired Scripture, really change our minds here when we think about the pursuit of godliness and Christ-likeness. There's so many physical things around us and, and, and endeavors in this life that we intuitively know will require sacrifice. You know, when we, when we want to uh, maybe, like like I said, have, have a physical uh, exercise for something, Ironman triathlon, or, or maybe when we want to take a, a vacation in the summer, or maybe when we want to uh, do a project in our house, we all know that, that those sorts of things, unless you're independently wealthy, will require some restrictions. I have to, to cut out this so that I can do this. And yet, maybe some of us seem to think, maybe most of us seem to think, maybe all of us from time to time uh, begin to think that, that to pursue Christlikeness will sort of come naturally and with ease. And that it won't require restrictions or training. Paul is laying it on heavy in this text. And he says, first, it's going to require many restrictions. And it's going to require training. And so part of that training is going to be the restriction. Well, what are we to be restricted from? And he says here, irreverent, silly myths. Well, what's a myth? Was that first on your list of what to be restricted from in the pursuit of godliness? (laughs) That doesn't come quickly to my mind, the irreverent silly myth. But what are they? Maybe they're closer to us than we think. Well, the word myth simply means a fable, something unhistorical or, or, or untruthful, a falsehood, an invention. And this particular word, myth, appears at least five times in the New Testament. And I want to read to you the verses in which they appear Because always reading a word in context will help us to know what it is, how to define it. Context is very important. Listen carefully as I read these verses. 1 Timothy 1, 3 and 4. Paul writes, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, he says to Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, that's our word, and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The next verse is our text this morning, first Timothy four, seven, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. The third verse, Second Timothy four, three and four, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The next verse is in Titus one 13 and 13-14, where Paul writes to Titus, Rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The last verse I want to read to you is from the Apostle Peter, his second letter. And he says, 2 Peter 1 and verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I just read those verses to you all having the word myths in it. Now what we need to do to, to define a word, to help us understand what it is, We need to notice these texts and what is compared to the myths and what is contrasted with the myths. There's certain words that are put together with myths and and seem to accompany it or almost are, are the same thing as a myth and then words that are contrasting. So the things that we see compared to myths are different doctrine or false teaching, endless genealogies, taking the genealogies of the Old Testament and twisting them and squeezing out of them things that ought not to be interpreted from those texts of Scripture. Jewish myths. Certain religious groups making certain teachings known. Commands of those who turn away from the truth. Do's and don'ts that actually lead you away from the Gospel of Jesus Christ. A cleverly devised myth cleverly devised. Very interesting. Meaning human invention with intention. So those are what are compared with myths and come alongside of them. Different doctrine, endless genealogies, Jewish myths, commands of those who turn away from the truth, cleverly devised myths. Now, what is contrasted with a myth in those verses? The stewardship from God that is by faith. Sound teaching. Truth, sound in the faith. Again, truth. eyewitness accounts of Christ's life that have been inspired by the Spirit. This is very helpful. Before we summarize a definition for myths, I just want you to remember also that First Timothy 4 6 through 10 comes on the heels of First Timothy 4: 1 through 5, which talked about false teachers, liars, who are promoting demonic teaching. So myths can also be compared to demonic doctrine and the lies of false teachers. So by looking at all of those, we can understand that myths are unhistorical, fictional accounts or narratives or sayings that are cleverly devised, cleverly invented, by false teachers or liars, so that they can build upon those inventions different doctrines. And then by those different doctrines, command the followers to do things that will turn them away from the truth. So I'm seeing three pieces here that help us understand the the, really the seriousness of myths. There's, There's a story that's invented, and then... A doctrine built upon that invention and then commands that turn people away from the truth are built upon those doctrines. And that is literally the opposite of the Gospels. When you read the Gospels, are you reading myths? No, they're not inventions. They are literally historical eyewitness accounts, narratives, sayings of the Christ that were written by the apostles as they were inspired by the Spirit, not through the human clever concoction like like Peter says. And then they would build upon them sound doctrines and by them command the followers of Christ to repent and believe and obey the truth. So myths and gospels are really exactly the opposite of each other. So what are some examples of myths? Well, there's one example back in verse 4 of chapter 1. Paul says genealogies. It appears that some Jewish false teachers were reading through Old Testament genealogies and cleverly decided to interpret them allegorically or fictitiously. Think about that for a minute. You're reading an Old Testament genealogy. Think of all the stories you could squeeze out of a genealogy. All those names and little bits and pieces of information. That's what these false teachers were doing. Oh, I know what happened there when so-and-so begets so-and-so and and, and this happened and that and and pretty soon you've got a whole story that's not even there. And those false teachers were reading into those genealogies elements that that were inventive interpretations and they're, they're leading people away from the truth. A couple more examples of what Paul would call the myth would be something like the Gospel of Thomas. How many of you have heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Not Thomas, but the Apostle, right? And there's another one that, that I'll refer to here. It's is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Both of these were written about 2nd century A.D., somewhere in the middle. And, and, and both of them are non-canonical Gospels, meaning they, they, didn't, they, didn't, they were not affirmed as inspired Scripture. But they're still floating around there. And they draw upon the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but add all kinds of fiction. For example, I listened to the infancy Gospel of Thomas read yesterday. It's crazy. For example, it's, so, so the infancy Gospel of Thomas talks about Jesus previous to his, his time in the temple as 12 years old, when he answered his mother, I must be about my father's business. So, so then you have this question that would come from these Jewish uh, scholars, false teachers, that well, I wonder what Jesus was like before that. And so it's, it's story after story of Jesus' childhood from about five years old to 12. And one of the stories in particular talks about how he, he was with his other friends at five years old, and one of these kids bumps into him. And he, Jesus gets mad at this friend, and strikes him dead. And there's another. It's just you're like that's not Jesus at all. It seems like he gets very angry for the smallest things. Another story that's told in the in the gospel, the infancy gospel of Thomas, is how his father, being a carpenter, right, Joseph being a carpenter, uh, was making a bed frame, and it so happened that as he was cutting wood, he miscut and one of the lengths for the bed frame was too short, and so Jesus stretched it out so it fit. It's kind of ridiculous. And so these are the kinds of stories that you would find in in the, the infancy Gospel of Thomas. J. Warner Wallace writes, these elaborate stories, legends, and fabrications were written by authors who were motivated to alter the history of Jesus to suit their own purposes. You see how myths work? An invention, you build doctrine upon, and then you end up commanding people to do things that turn them away from the truth. He also writes, J. Warner Wallace, writes that the Gospel of Thomas, which is different from the infancy Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas... He said, salvation is found not in the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, nor in good works, but instead found in the secret, hidden words of Jesus if they are properly and insightfully understood. That's ancient Gnosticism, which is similar to modern day New Age teaching. And that's why the Gospel of Thomas is sometimes called the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. And of course, The apostles had much to say in the New Testament about Gnosticism. And therefore, both of those Gospels were rejected um, by the early church fathers and the church as a whole, and therefore not affirmed as inspired Scripture. And that's exactly what Paul says to do with myths here in verse 7. Nothing to do with them. Or, in other words, reject them. It's a very strong word. Reject them. Refuse them. Don't don't dabble with these things in order to see if they prove true. Such writings and teachings will not help the good servant of Christ Jesus to progress in His training toward godliness. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.4 that entertaining such myths will only result in a growing list of unanswerable questions and lead the person away from the truth Following after myths will lead a person away from the stewardship from God that is by faith, Paul says. And, and you know what? Here, sadly, in, in many educational institutions in our country, um, these non-canonical gospels are offered in religious courses as a viable material for spiritual consideration. So, I would encourage you, young people, if 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 you attend a secular university and take a course in religion or ancient literature, don't be surprised if you find yourself assigned to reading a myth and told that it is just as valid as the Bible for your historic and spiritual instruction. The evil one wants people to consider those counterfeit books and to entertain and follow those questions and, and, and those endless traps of skeptical thinking that will lead away from the truth and tempt you to doubt the reliability of God's inspired and inerrant word. Don't do it. Paul would say to you have nothing to do with it. Reject it. Refuse it. Instead, train yourself toward godliness by a tireless devotion to the words and doctrines of Scripture. In fact, Paul here describes these myths with two words. He says they're irreverent and silly. These are very interesting words. First, the irreverent, worldly, profane, unholy, ungodly. They're, they're not from God. Obviously not from God. It's, it's, a, it's a revolting counterfeit. I mean, you read, you read the Scriptures, and then you read one of those myths, you can't compare them. One witnesses from itself that it is of God, the other witnesses, that it is certainly a work of of man and and the worst of man's works. Silly, this word silly, you know what that word literally means? Some of you with an older translation might have something like fit only for old women. That's literally what it means. And and that's a kind of idiom of the day. It was not meant to be derogatory toward, toward ladies or the elderly. Right? It, it's a picture Picture a 100-year-old lady who is, is sitting in her corner rocker and when one of her great-great-great-great-grandchildren comes near, she sort of grabs them by the arm and pulls them over to her and whispers in them ears these crazy stories that she has concocted in her, in her daydreams. And she's senile. That's, that's the idea. That's what these myths are. They're irreverent and they're silly. Now, at this time, as we think about genealogies or the Gospel of Thomas or the infancy of Gospel of Thomas, they might, that might seem far away from us, right? Like, I, I'm never going to read any of those. That's, that's not going to be important. Well, well, let's bring it closer to home. There are religious groups, dear ones, right now around us whose teachings find their source in extra-biblical inventions. Which we could call myths. You realize that this is this is deadly serious. They take the Bible and then they try to mingle with it. For example, the teachings of a woman who claimed to have regulatory or revelatory dreams and trances from God. You know who that is? Ellen G. White, and that's the Adventist movement. Or Uh, The words of men claiming to speak for God with authority when they have donned the robes of the highest office of the organization. What's that? Roman Catholic Church. Or or the writings of a man claiming to have met with an angel and received writings from that angel. That's Joseph Smith and the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. All of these have have a presence in our community. And really, what we need to understand here is that it is so important, it is so important that we do not take human invention and mingle it with the Word of God in order to teach doctrine and call people to obedience. They take these these human inventions, these these revelations that they claim to be from God, and then they build upon them religious traditions and different doctrines and commands commandments that bind men and women and boys and girls in religious systems that require adherence to do's and don'ts so that they can endlessly strive to gain and maintain God's favor. And that's called self-righteousness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You see how there's a pattern here, dear ones. There's a pattern. When, when humans make an invention of revelation... And then they add it to Scripture and build upon it tradition and doctrine and commandments, you end up decaying into a self righteous religion, a man made system of do's and don'ts. You see how this has happened over and over again. And they try to make those myths mesh with the Scripture, and inevitably, they twist the meaning of the Scripture to their own destruction like Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 16. So Paul writes to Timothy and the Holy Spirit would say to us as well, reject it, avoid it, refuse these myths upon which false doctrine and self-righteousness are built. They're irreverent. They're silly and and they will not aid anyone in their exercise toward godliness. In fact, they will hinder you. The apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2 and verse 23. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Colossians 2.23 Can you sense how very serious Paul is about myths and false teaching? He's so serious about this. And about being nourished up in the words of truth and in the doctrines of Scripture. Now, I don't think, I don't want to be misunderstood here either. I don't think Paul is forbidding us from gaining enough knowledge of a myth or a false teaching in order to refute it. Do you see the difference there? I don't think he's telling us, like, shut it all out and plug your ears. No, no. We need to be able to know enough about it to recognize it for what it is. He's telling us. To expose myths and false teaching for what they are, irreverent and silly, and then reject them. That's really the thrust of that word, have nothing to do with. Reject it. Refute it. Like they deserve to be. But, don't entertain them as possible options for spiritual edification. Don't explore them uh, to see if they yield some truth. Don't probe them with curiosity to see if they show the Scriptures to be unreliable in some way. Don't tolerate them as the valuable religious preferences of some good people who mean well. That's not what's going on here. Remember where all false teaching comes from? Demons. 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. through So avoid, reject, refute them. This is Eternally important. This is a vital aspect of our becoming good servants of Christ Jesus who are training for godliness. Realize the goal of training. Godliness. Realize the restriction of training. False teaching. Truth. Number three this morning, and I think we'll, we'll finish with this one. Let's talk about the value of training. The value of training. Why should I give myself toward godliness? Paul wants to give you some reasons for that. And so that's why he begins verse 8 with 4. In other words, because. 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 While bodily training is of some value, verse 8 says, godliness is of value in every way. Paul is again referring to that physical exercise in the Ephesian gymnasium. That was a cultural icon of the Greco-Roman world. The culture was infatuated with the abilities... And the beauties of the body. I mean, you just you just take a minute and you and you can you you can remember throughout school as you would look at history and see all the sculptures of the Greco-Roman world that everybody was all about the body. The human body was worshipped, and and so many lived for bodily exercise. Well, that sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? We're not so far away from that. Maybe we don't make the sculptures that they did, but sure, we, we worship our human bodies. We're consumed with physical exercise and health and beauty. We spend so much time and energy investing in our physical bodies. I, I, I understand the pull and, and have felt that myself. I don't like being ill. right? We want to be healthy. We want to be exercised. And, and Paul is saying to Timothy and for us, Physical exercise has some value. It's of some value. But godliness and spiritual exercise that is directed toward godliness is of far greater value. It's valuable, what does Paul say? In every way. So it's a comparison. Of values. And it will tell you where your heart is. Do you treasure the sum value? The small value of bodily training? Or the great value of godliness? Paul explains what he means by godliness being of value in every way. He says, It's in value in every way because or as it holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Let's look at this for a minute. Physical exercise in itself has some value, but its value is confined to this life, right? It's it's confined to this life. You exercise your body and you might be a little thinner, a little stronger, a little more able. But that's only as long as your earthly body lasts, right? And that's all subject to God's providence. But, exercising yourself toward godliness holds a promise that extends above and beyond this life and this body. It holds promise For this life now and the future life. And and what is that promise that he's talking about? It holds a promise, Paul says. Remember for a moment what godliness is in this context? The mystery of godliness, Paul says, is Christ Himself. So to exercise oneself toward godliness is to exercise oneself toward that Christ-focused life. It's to have your trust placed on Christ, your mind filled with Christ, your affections growing toward Christ, your worship focused on Christ, your will submitted to Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. And and if if you're pursuing that godly life and you're exercising yourself toward that by the grace of God, then, then what you know about yourself is that the new birth has had an effect on you. Right? The new birth has, has brought new life to you. It's already begun a life of repentance from sin and faith toward Christ for salvation. Exercising or training toward godliness is evidence that true spiritual life has begun. That's the fruit of it. And that person is given the promise of eternal life. The eternal life of Christ, both in this present earthly existence and in a future heavenly existence. Paul says exactly what the promise is in 2 Timothy 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise is life in Christ Jesus now and forever. 1 Timothy 4.8 is not saying that if you train for godliness, your promise to have a good earthly life, your best life now. That's not what it's saying. You could you could see it that way. Do you see how someone might misinterpret it that way? It Godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for life to come. Well, if I pursue godliness, I'm going to have a great life now. Health, wealth, prosperity, so on, and it'll get a little better when I get to heaven. That's not what this text is teaching. Nor is this verse saying that the exercise of godliness somehow earns the fulfillment of life in Christ. That promise. I think what this verse is teaching us is that the one who is training for godliness is showing that they have already set the eyes of their faith on Christ who is that mystery of godliness. And consequently, they're striving to grow in Christ-likeness and seeking to know Christ and in in seeking to know Christ in the next life. And that exercise of godliness is something only a true believer in Christ can do. And it is to the one who believes on Christ that God has promised the eternal life of Christ with all of the spiritual blessings and treasures that are in Christ. And that that's not just for future. That's for now and future. That's the promise of godliness. It's like what Paul wrote. How great is the, uh, uh, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 Or listen to how James would put it. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. These are those verses that sound like you're working for something. Did you follow me? It sounds like if I, if, I, if I strain and train really hard in this pursuit of godliness, then I'm going to get eternal life. I'll have the life of Christ. No, no, that's not the idea. The idea is, is once you have begun by the new birth to place your faith and trust in Christ, then from that will, will grow a life of pursuing godliness. And to that person, God promises life. If He perseveres. The fruit of saving faith is the exercise toward godliness and the earthly and heavenly promise of perseverance in pursuing godliness is the life that is in Christ Jesus. So, if God says to you, "You train for godliness and you get the eternal life of Christ, or bodily training, and a little thinner, a little stronger, a little more able in this life until your body's done," what would you rather have? That's what Paul's doing. He's putting, he's putting the values before you. It's like what Jesus said, John 17:3. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom You have sent. That life begins now. To know Christ begins now. The moment faith begins. And that lasts forever. Or, or Jesus said, Matthew 16.25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. You hold on to all of that this life can give you, and you exercise yourself toward all that this life can give you and you'll find it slipping through your fingers, right? But if you exercise yourself toward godliness, you will find the promise that godliness holds and, and, and it's the life of Christ will be enjoyed now and forever. So think about this, dear ones. Elders, deacons, Bible study leaders, youth class teachers, parents. All who would become good servants of Christ, exercise yourself toward godliness. You you only have so many ambitions in life that you can pursue with your whole heart, right? Life is short. Days are short. Give yourself to godliness with more diligence and ambition than you give yourself to anything else. Don't let earthly, physical, bodily pursuits pull you away from training for godliness? Are you allowing the the pursuit or protection of physical health to pull you away from training toward godliness? It's not wrong to pursue physical health, but it can become wrong if it pulls you away from training toward godliness. Are you allowing physical sports or exercise to pull you away from training toward godliness? Are you allowing physical relaxation, recreation, vacation to pull you away from training toward godliness? There's so many things you could put in that spot and wonder. Are they, are they pulling me away? Each of those hold a value. Their value doesn't hold a candle to the value of godliness. It's good to enjoy those gifts, but they must not distract us from training toward godliness. Train yourself toward godliness. It has value in every way. It holds the promise of eternal life in Christ. And you know what? The last thing I'll say about this is that you can accept everything here. You can accept verse 8 as absolute truth not only because it's the inspired word of God. But look what verse, look what Paul adds here in verse 9. The saying is trustworthy, it deserves full acceptance. That's one of the five trustworthy sayings of the pastoral epistles. It's faithful, it's true. If you invest yourself in godliness, you won't be disappointed or ashamed at the end of that pursuit. That's what Paul is telling you and me. Train yourself toward godliness because of its value. Well, next week we'll look at the labor of training and then the hope of training as well. And as we close this morning, I just want to remind you that as we, and we'll talk more about this next week, as we pursue these things, Paul is really calling us to action. But as we pursue these things, where ought our hope to be? Our hope is to be set on the living God. Every every bit of energy for, for training, every new insight that we may gain to see that godliness is of such greater value, every bit of discernment to know what to refuse and reject. Where does it come from as believers? It all comes from God. He is the one who is saving us. And so like Paul, we are to set our hope on Him. We'll talk more about that next week. Would you stand with me? And we'll pray together. Our Father these texts are certainly calling us to a a very high and holy way of life and we confess to you that we have made other things more important than training for godliness we have too often thought that christlikeness comes without toil, and striving. Forgive us for misunderstanding. Forgive us for laziness. Thank you for the forgiveness of Christ. Thank you for His perfect righteousness in our place. But Father, we also confess this morning, even as we know and believe that godliness requires training and striving and toil, we know that we cannot train and toil and strive apart from Your grace. So we come back to again hope in You. To give us hearts that value godliness more than other things. And and that You would give us the strength To fulfill our heart's desire toward godliness. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. It's, It's like so many texts say. It is you who works in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So upon that basis, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Father, fill us with your strength. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing one song here this morning. As we we depart from one another, I think we're going to sing How Firm a Foundation.